All right, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, Acts 18. Is where we'll be for today. All right, let me get there myself. If you're a guest with us, let me welcome you. We're so glad that you are here with us today and hope that you've already been blessed as we've been worshiping our Lord and Savior together who gave his life for us. And now in this part of our gathering, we're looking together into God's word to see him, to see him at work, and by God's grace to to respond, um, to be who he's calling us to be and to live how he is calling us to live. So Acts 18, and today we'll be looking at verses 18 to 28. Acts 18, 18. It's tricky, right? And we'll go to the end of the chapter. So let me read that and you follow along. After this, or those events that had just happened where Paul had had the word from the Lord, no one will attack you to harm you, I'm with you, I have many in this city who are my people, and then they try to get him in trouble, and it ends up flipping around on them, and the person leading the group trying to get him in trouble ends up getting beaten instead of Paul, which is the opposite of the normal pattern. Paul's not run out of town. These next words will see him go of his own accord. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that at just the right time you sent your son to live the life that we could never live. To die the death that we deserved to die. Taking all our sins in his own body on the tree. And that he didn't stay dead, but on the third day rose in glory for a powerful resurrection. And that even now he has ascended to your side and one day will return. We thank you that even now he prays for us. That our faith wouldn't fail. 
We thank you that he keeps us. And we thank you that he is coming again. And so would you help that good news that we belong to him to shape our whole lives, that every one of us would live according to the calling that you have on us in Christ. And we ask that you'd help us today to see him, to give you, Father, Son, and Spirit, the glory that you deserve, and to live for you with your help all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea this morning is this. We are all called to be laborers in the Lord's harvest. So we're kind of stealing from Matthew 9, where we had the reading at the beginning, where he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. There's a lot of harvest and few laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. By his grace, we are part of the harvest, and we are called to participate in the harvesting. We are all called to be laborers in the Lord's harvest. Now, we've been saying all along as we've been tracking with Paul, it's not just Paul. There's other people too. Look at other people on his team. But it does kind of feel quite a bit like, well, it's Paul. You know, when it's time to speak, it's always Paul. When it's time to discern something, it's always Paul. And we can be like, I'm no Paul. I mean, a couple of you are, but most of us are not Paul, and even the Pauls here wouldn't claim to be a Paul like that Paul. Right, Paul? Right, great. Thank you. Or, yeah, right? Okay, so in that sense, which I have to be careful with some of the Pauls in here, in that sense, not a one of us is Paul. Right? We don't have a conversion story quite like his. I don't know that anybody does. And the story of our lives doesn't look quite like his. And it's easy for us, even though I've been saying, like, it's for all of us, it's for all of us, it's for all of us, it's not just him. It's like, "Mm, it's kind of like just him, though, until today. It's not just about big leaders, especially empowered, anointed people. It's for all of us, the regular people, too. And it's right here in the text. Before we look at the text, we're going to look at maps. Maps are so fun. And so here we are. You'll notice that it's smaller again, but we've got the the red circles going on from the very first time you see the map. And you'll see in a minute why it's smaller, because we have to zoom out a little bit to figure out where we are and where all Paul goes in this text. So as we're looking at the text here at the beginning, we're also going to be looking at the map. So what you have on the screen right now is Corinth. That's what's circled there in Greece And that's where Paul was last week and in the first few words of our text this week. where he, The place where he stayed many days longer and then left when he wanted to, not when he was kicked out, was Corinth there in Greece. And Paul decides what we're actually seeing here at the beginning is the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of the third He decided to take leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila went with him, and first they went across the sea there to Ephesus. And that's where most of what we talk about today and next week and maybe the week after that too happens there in 
Ephesus. This is an area Paul had wanted to go to before and didn't make it there. And now on his way back to Syria, which is all the way over there, the yellow in the bottom right, he stops in Ephesus. And this time he stops there just for a little bit. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He does what he always does. But here it's different. They ask him to stay longer. Usually they kick him out, right? We don't like you. You're saying these strange things. They ask him to stay longer, and he says, no. What? Well, he's, he was on a mission to get back home. But on taking leave of them, verse 21, he says, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And then from there, it says, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Now, it doesn't say what city he went to to greet this church, but there's a couple keys right in our text that help us understand, as you can see on the map, that he went to Jerusalem. And that's why we had to zoom out, because the last several weeks we've been looking at the map, Jerusalem's not on the map. He left from Antioch and went out and came back to Antioch. This time, he went to Jerusalem. And we get that from the saying, he went up to greet the church and then went down to Antioch. So after being in Jerusalem, he went actually on our map up to Antioch, right? That looks very much like up, right? If I said, I'm going up to Boston, right? We're shipping up to Boston, not going down to Boston, right? You would never say, I'm going down to Boston from here. But people always said, you go down from Jerusalem. Wherever you're going from Jerusalem is down. Part of that because it was high up, but it wasn't the highest point. It's the highest point because it's where they met with God. It's where his temple was, where his presence was on the earth. And so he greeted the church in Jerusalem. He went up to greet the church and then went down to Antioch and, of course, goes up on the map. And when he's there, presumably, he's reporting back to the church. Antioch, you remember, is where he left from for both of these missionary journeys. And he goes back he reports to the church. He's probably getting some support and encouragement to go out again, maybe finding new team members. But he spent some time there in Antioch. And after that, it says in verse 23, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so he's going back to where he went on that first missionary journey with Barnabas, where they preached the gospel and saw churches planted. And he's going back again, like he did at the beginning of the second missionary journey, to strengthen the disciples, to encourage the churches. And finally, he gets to Ephesus. And we'll see Paul in Ephesus next week. But all of a sudden, there's something in verses 24 to 28 that we have not seen in a long time. There's a story here that, yeah, the people know Paul, but Paul's not there. It's always tracked him. Other people leave, they disappear from the narrative, right? What happened with Barnabas after they broke up and then Barnabas took Mark and went out? We don't know. There's nothing else about him. Now, we know that Mark was very valuable to the ministry later on. So we can assume some things there, but we're not told what happens. We get a story here in verses 24 to 28 about laborers in the Lord's harvest who are not the big leader that we've been tracing all along. 
And it's a reminder that it's not just Paul. And the work hasn't been happening just through Paul. Yes, it's the story of the end of a missionary journey and the beginning of another one. But here in verses 24 to 28, we see that in between, while Paul's going back and reporting and coming back, the Lord is still at work. The gospel is still advancing. It is still going forward. So these few verses at the end of Acts 18 serve as a reminder that Acts, as we kind of zoom back out to where it wasn't all about Paul, they serve as a reminder that Acts is the story of the good news about Jesus Christ going throughout the world in the power of the Spirit to both Jew and Gentiles, to everyone who by grace would believe. So we're considering today that we are all called to be laborers in the Lord's harvest. And it is the Lord's harvest. It's the Lord's harvest. It's not Paul's story. It's not Paul's mission. It's the Lord's mission. It's the Lord's harvest. When we think back to Matthew 9, he says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And so even Paul, we've seen all along, and we see some hints in this text, is a man under authority. He doesn't just go where he wants to go. There's a really strange thing, at least for us as we think about it, I think. Maybe you found it strange. Look at the last part of verse 18 again, right before verse 19, that last sentence. At Sancrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Luke could have told this story without saying that, right? Now, where's Sancrea? We're not looking at the map anymore, but you remember where Corinth was. Sancrea would have been actually under that red circle. It's the eastern port of Corinth. And there, he cut his hair. And you might have, when we read through that text, been like, what about this vow thing? Well, scholars tell us that Jews would take a vow of thanksgiving for past blessing. So it could be looking back to the the word of the Lord to him that we saw and how the Lord kept that promise to him. And he could take a vow, saying there's going to be a certain period of time where he's going to act in certain ways that would end with shaving his head. But it could also be... a part of a request for future blessing. That's probably more what we think of with vows. I will make a vow and I'm asking the Lord to do this. And keeping your vow doesn't obligate the Lord to do that. There are all sorts of ways we would uh, be tempted to misuse them if we could guarantee certain outcomes by saying, Lord, I promise I will do this. But it's part of their devotion to him. So perhaps he took a vow asking for the Lord's protection as he went home to Antioch on his journey. Now, it also could be neither one of those. Later in Acts, in chapter 21, Paul will join others in performing a vow, mainly to undermine the Jews' argument that he was overthrowing the law. Okay, that was part of what was happening, right? He's going into the synagogue saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And to the Gentiles, they're being added to the church without being circumcised, not having to keep the law. And this is hard for Jews. It's like, how can they really be in with us without doing 
all the things. And Paul's like, they do not have to do all the things. Like, he's coming in, he's trying to upend everything. And Paul's going to take great pains, sometimes literally, to show that he's not just trying to overthrow everything. He'll tell us in 1 Corinthians 9, right, that to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win some of the Jews. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile so that I could win some of the Gentiles. I'm willing to put up with things. I'm willing to do things and not do things, right? Do things I wouldn't normally do. Um, Not do things that I would want to do in order for more people to hear the good news and know about Jesus and trust in him. Yes, Paul was very jealous to make sure that Gentiles weren't brought under the law, but he didn't have a problem with Jews continuing to keep it. As long as they recognized that they were Christians, that they belonged to Christ because of faith in Christ and not through works of the law. Remember, that was the heart of the argument in Acts 15, the heart of his argument in Galatians 2. is like, we are saved, all of us, the same way. Whether we're still performing vows, we belong to Christ by faith in him. His taking a vow is also evidence that he's submitting himself to God. Right? You make your vows to the Lord, and you are obligated to keep the vows that you make. He's not in charge. The Lord is the one who is in charge. So Paul takes a vow here. It doesn't mean that we need to come up with a big theology of vows, and now we're all going to start taking vows. Though if you want to, you can. We'll talk more about the nature of the vows and what it would take to keep them when we get to chapter 21 if you're trying to go back and keep the law, but I actually don't recommend that you um, do that because we are free. And it'd be a shame to give up bacon. So Paul is under the Lord's authority. It is the Lord's harvest. We've seen in the last few chapters, Paul doesn't even decide where he goes in ministry. Remember back in chapter 16, language like, we wanted to go here, but we were forbidden by the Spirit. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know that it happened. And then a couple verses later, it's the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow us to go where we wanted to go. Even here in verse 21, he tells the Ephesians, I will return to you if God wills. Right? He's not in charge of his life. He doesn't control whether he will actually complete the journey and complete the return journey to Ephesus. Another hint about it being the Lord's harvest is a note in verse 27. Look at verse 27. This is talking about Apollos. As Luke describes Apollos' ministry in Corinth, he says that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Luke has now gone out of his way at several points in the story in Acts to show that it's not about Peter, it's not about Stephen, Philip, Paul, and even now Apollos. It's like in Acts 13, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's like a few verses ago in in Acts 18:10. I have many in this city who are my people. 
And now, here in verse 27, it's those who, through grace, had believed. That's the only way we get in. It's the Lord who is calling his people. It's the Lord who is gathering his people from the ends of the earth to be saved. It is his harvest. To use another metaphor, it is his vineyard. And we are called to be workers in it. But before we're workers in it, by grace, we are part of the harvest. There was a point for each one of us where we were outside of Christ, where we did not know him. We did not know his ways. We did not give him the glory that he was due. We lived for ourselves and not for him. And in his kindness, in his mercy, in his grace, he sent someone to tell us the good news about Jesus. That though we were lost in sin, he came for us. That though there was no way we could pay back what we owed, he gave his life for us. And by God's grace, we heard that good news and we believed. We have been gathered to him from the ends of the earth. The gospel has come all the way to us. Someone came to you with the good news. By grace, you're part of the harvest. And this harvest is gathered through the work of many laborers. It's not just Paul. And though the narrative in the majority of this part of Acts has Paul as a central figure, we're reminded that the gospel has been going forward through him and through others. It's the Lord's harvest and the Lord calls many laborers. The Lord calls many laborers. And so it's good for us to kind of zoom out a bit like we had to do with the map to include Jerusalem. While we've been sort of focused on Paul, there is other gospel work going on. There's not just one type of laborer even. We can tend to think, oh, the important work is the upfront speaking work. That's where it's at. That's where it matters. That's when God's at work. That's where the power is. And it's important, but it's not all and not even close. People other than Paul here are doing the work. Think about Rome. Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, right? Had Paul been to Rome yet when he wrote that letter? No. How did a church get there? Like, I don't know anything about that. Well, there's theories, right, about Peter. And we don't know that for sure. But we know that, yeah, we're tracing the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And Paul's going to end up here at the end of Acts in Rome. But the gospel went there even when Paul couldn't. Remember those areas where the Lord said, don't go there, and the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow him to go there? There were churches there. God worked. There weren't yet when Paul wanted to go there. But that didn't mean, oh, the Lord isn't going to work in those areas. It meant the Lord wants Paul to work in this other area. And there will be other laborers in the harvest. And so here in these five verses, we see Priscilla, Aquila, 
and Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila we were introduced to last week. And for all three of them, we don't have their conversion story. And we get Paul's amazing conversion story. He's like, give me one like that, right? We don't know. They were Jews, so they all would have grown up hearing the Old Testament scriptures. But at some point, they heard the word of the Lord. They were already believers, Priscilla and Aquila, before Paul found them. He goes into this place, and they're believers from the church in Rome, and they had been expelled, kicked out by Claudius, and that's how they get to Corinth. But they'd already heard. They already believed. And Priscilla and Aquila, they shared Paul's work. They were tent makers, but they also shared in his ministry. They become his companions for a bit as they're with him in Corinth and then to Ephesus, and then he leaves them behind there. In Romans 16, Paul calls them fellow workers in Christ. They end up hosting the Ephesian church in their house. That's referenced in 1 Corinthians 16, in the closing there. And then in the closing of Romans 16, uh, we know that they move back to Rome. It says, greet Priscilla and Aquila the church that meets in their house. And so they had a role. We're never told they were pastors, but they had a role. They were fellow workers. They served along with Paul, and they served not along with Paul. They served in their place that had been assigned to them in the Lord's harvest. And here in our text for today, they do something very important. They take Apollos aside and explain to him, the text says in verse 26, the word of God more accurately. And this is the beginning of a powerful ministry for Apollos. We're introduced to him here in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so that's in Egypt, That's the intellectual center of the world. The library at Alexandria is legendary. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. It could also mean he was very learned. He knew his stuff, and he was powerful with the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Somewhere along the way, we learn in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Then we have this funny note that we're actually going to spend more time on next week. The last part of verse 25 says, Though he knew only the baptism of John. We're going to find some people. Paul's actually going to find them. We'll read the story. Next week, who knew only the baptism of John. And see what happens with them and how they become full believers in Jesus. But here, Apollos knows about Jesus. He's teaching about Jesus. That's the idea of him speaking boldly in the synagogues. If he was just saying it's, it's good to follow the law, he wouldn't need much boldness in a synagogue. He needs boldness to say the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. So there was something missing in his teaching. And so this is really instructive for us, 
What do Priscilla and Aquila, these companions of Paul, these fellow workers of Paul, what do they do when there's someone preaching Jesus, but they're missing something kind of important in their teaching? What do we do then? They take him aside. They don't stand up and refute him then. They take him aside and they explain to him. And they do this together. It's not Aquila did this while his wife was making dinner. They did this together. They both knew the word and the way of the Lord and they used it to help one who was preaching the good news about Jesus but needed some important correction, important adjustment. And this becomes the beginning of a powerful ministry for Apollos. In verses 27 and 28, he goes to Achaia, back across the Aegean Sea there, back to Corinth. And he goes with the commendation of the brothers. They explain the way of God more accurately to him. And we've seen the way already be used as just talking about following Jesus, Christianity, right? Even when Paul was going to persecute the church back in Acts 9. He was going to persecute those who were followers of the way. We'll see it used that way again really soon. Here it's the way of the Lord, the way of God. They explained it to him more accurately. But when he wanted to go back, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And then he helped. He greatly helped. And he was refuting the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And this wasn't all. Apollos was so effective in Corinth that some people in the church in Corinth started an Apollos is our main dude club. We learn about that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? Some of them say, I'm of Paul. I'm a follower of Paul. And others say, I am a follower of Apollos. Man, you heard that guy preach. He's got it. Others like, Nah, Peter, man, he, he's, he's the man. And then the super spiritual ones who kind of figured out what was going on, but not quite, like, I follow Christ. I mean, that's, the, that's the winner, right? For sure. But Paul's addressing all those groups and saying, you're, you're missing it. We're not supposed to be divided into factions based on our favorite preacher, the one who is the most influential in our Well, I like him. Well, I like him. He, he's a good one. Yeah. And then the, I'm above all the rest of you. I follow Christ. Yes, we are all to follow Christ. And God uses leaders in our lives. Paul's not saying, ah, it doesn't matter. Don't look to the leaders in your lives. He'll say that very explicitly in other places. And yet, we don't want to make too much of leaders in our lives. And one of the ways we know when we're making too much is when we're separating from other genuine believers in Jesus because of our teachers that we love. But we're not in 1 Corinthians today, so that's, we'll just like leave that there for a second. We're here in Acts, and the point is that Apollos was used mightily of the Lord. So now let's consider our part. That's what's going on in the text. What is our part, our response? First, praise the Lord that you are part of the harvest. 
before we begin to think about here's what I'm supposed to do and we're all laborers in the harvest and we've got to get to it. And we'll get there in a minute. Praise the Lord. You are part of the harvest. When Paul is talking about himself and Apollos and their respective ministries and influence in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And by his grace, we are God's field. We are God's building. Through someone else's testimony about Jesus, we heard the good news and believed. Before Jesus says, go and live for me, he came and died for us. And any call to say, this is what we've got to do, and the New Testament's actually filled with that, is always grounded in what Jesus has done for us. Before we can go and do anything, we must know that apart from him, we can do nothing. And the way we started out our lives was actually in rebellion against his authority. We are God's field. By his grace, we are among those he came to save. And it happened in real time as someone came to us with the good news. And we heard and believed. So praise the Lord. You are part of the harvest. The good news about Jesus has come all the way to you. And you belong to Christ, body and soul, in life and in death, both now and forever. Praise his name. And now we are called to take that story to others. Like it was brought to you, we are called to take that good news to others. Praise the Lord that you're part of the harvest and live for the Lord as a laborer in his harvest. Live for the Lord as a laborer in his harvest. The Lord's mission was not a one-man show back then, and it's not a one-man show now. We are all workers. We all have an important part to play in God's church, in his mission in the world, and in his kingdom. And so we all, as those who belong to him, are called to take the initiative to encourage and build up one another with God's word. Again, Priscilla and Aquila, it's like they're there, they're in the synagogue, they're hearing this guy, wow, he's really good, he's right on a lot of stuff. They don't go home and say, wow, we better write Paul a letter and see what we should do. No, they know God's word. They know God's ways. They talk to Apollos. And these are regular people, not in full-time ministry, tent makers who teach Apollos. They probably hadn't been to Bible college or seminary. 
They definitely hadn't done the Christian conference circuit, but they knew Jesus, his word, and his way. And God is calling some of us to be the Priscilla, Aquila, and maybe even the Apollos in our day. It also helps us understand living as a laborer in his harvest that there are lots of other laborers and we relate to them as brothers and sisters because we all got in the same way. All right? Paul says, what's Apollos? What's Paul? We're just servants. The glory is the Lord's. The harvest is the Lord's. And so we don't need to fight with one another and strive against one another. How do we relate to people who don't quite have it right? Do we destroy them on Twitter? Call them heretics? Priscilla and Aquila show us a different way. They go to him. They quietly take him aside and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. And so let us, even as we were called to have eyes of compassion like our Lord at the very beginning today, let us look on other laborers in the harvest as fellow workers, as we all are fellow workers with God, who is the Lord of the harvest. And so some of us can be Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Now, not everyone will be as gifted as Apollos for sure, right? He stands out here. And ultimately, it is about God's power and God's choice who will have that power. But we can surmise from this that it's also about preparation. We don't sit around living our lives the way we've always lived, just doing whatever we want to do, chasing after our own dreams, and then suddenly we're powerful ministers of the Lord with this in-depth knowledge of the Scriptures. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that at all. Apollos didn't just receive a direct revelation from God and now he knew what to say. No, he had been taught. And here in the text, he still had more to learn. That's instructive for us too. He had been taught. He was competent in the scriptures, but he didn't know all that he needed to know. But he showed by the scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus. And so for us, as we consider what it means to think about living as a laborer in the Lord's harvest, we can jump right away to like, oh man, I have to go and talk to that person. And that may be a place that needs, that our hearts need to go. But instead of just feeling our weakness, you're going, well, I can never do that, like a pastor or someone who's called to do this sort of stuff. One of the ways we can be prepared to be laborers in the harvest is to know the scriptures. Do we know our Bibles? Do we put the same kind of energy into knowing our Bible and seeing God there for who he is? That, that, that's what's happening in the Bible. He's revealing himself to us. Do we see him there in such a way that we are ready to share what we have seen? And probably many of us can testify to this. If there's a season where like, oh, I'm not really reading my Bible much, not really praying much, and then all of a sudden there's an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation and encourage somebody. It's like, mm, I know, I know a couple verses about something. 
right? We felt that. And it's amazing how as we're walking with God in his word and we're pursuing him and we're, we're reading and we're considering who Jesus is and what he has done for us, then when that opportunity comes, it's like, oh, wait, I know something about that. Because the Lord had prepared you beforehand for that moment through your pursuit of him in his word with the help of his spirit. And you still think like Apollos, man, I, I can still never, you know, it's just out of reach. And the point isn't be like Apollos. Maybe some of us will be the ones behind the scenes making everything go, hosting, supporting, and in the right moment, pulling someone aside and gently, graciously showing them a better way, according to the scriptures. Knowing God's word, knowing theology, that's just the big word for the study of God. Kids, knowing that is not just for grown-ups. It's like, well, they, they need to know that stuff. You can get started now. When Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, he says, but as for you, continue in what? In what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So kids, you are in an amazing spot where you have parents who know the Lord and love the Lord and love you and want you to know the Lord and to know his word and to know his ways. If you've been here for years, you've come up through children's classes here where you've been taught stories from God's word. And the children who are downstairs right now are learning catechism, question and answer, so that they can say, this is what's true about God. This is what's true about what he has done for us. Even as they hear the stories about God and his work in the world and his grace that is for us in Jesus. And so now is a prime opportunity in your youth to pursue the Lord and to know him through his word. But it's also not just for the kids. It's not just, well, they have a real opportunity now. It's for us. And clearly from the text today, it's not just for men. Whether you are a man or a woman, you are called to be competent in the scripture. There are some strands even that we would find a lot of common ground with in conservative Christianity where kind of the, the upshot of it, the way it ends up working itself out is men need to know their Bibles, men need to know theology, and the women better make some really good food and have some beautiful babies. Now hopefully no one would articulate it just like that, Right? But practically, sometimes that's where we end up. A story like this one says, no. The Bible, theology, knowing God, knowing his word, it's for men and women, all who are called by the name of the Lord. It's Priscilla and Aquila together. 
I don't know how much to, to make of this, and so I'm not going to draw too much from it, but it's interesting that when we're introduced, they're Aquila and Priscilla. And when they pull them aside, they're Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know if that means she's in charge. I'm pretty sure from other texts that doesn't mean that. But at the very least, it shows she is involved because she knows God's word. They explained. Again, it's not Aquila explained. Here you go, Apollos. And isn't, isn't Priscilla great in the kitchen? We're so happy about that. Praise the Lord. It's not it. They together pulled him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Men and women contributing together, laboring together in the Lord's harvest. So the big idea again, we are all called, every one of us, young, old, men, women, to be laborers in the Lord's harvest. We all have a part to play. Some are called to go out. Some are called to stay. Some are called to serve quietly, seemingly in the background. But the Lord knows, and he sees. Some may be called to speak with great power. But we can all pray for the Lord to send laborers into his harvest. And we might just find that as we pray that prayer, that he's answering it by calling us to be the answer to that prayer. And as he does that, he will be with us. He will help us by his spirit because he's the one who saves. It's not our mission, it's his. After all, he's the Lord of the harvest. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are the one who is over all and that though you are high above us, you did not just look on us in our sin and say, oh well. But you came for us in Christ. And Jesus, you gave your own body and blood in our place, taking all God's wrath. Oh, we thank you that we are part of your harvest. We thank you, too, that you have called each one of us to be laborers in your harvest. Would you help us to not look down on other laborers who don't quite have it right, knowing that we still have things to learn? But would you help us with joy by the power of your Holy Spirit to do the work that you have given us to do, loving you, loving others for your sake, being ready in the right moment as you work through your word by your spirit in us to speak of Jesus, our great Savior, the Lord of the harvest. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.